Hi, Victoria. How are you? Hey, good evening, Katarina. I'm well, thank you. How are you? Good, good too. I'm surrounded by fireflies actually right now. Oh my gosh. That's so got to be good luck. It's got to be yeah. really magical good luck. Yeah, the other day at dinner, they came like close. Yeah, there's right there. A few. Can you them. photograph them? Can you video them at all? Can you can you capture them somehow that way? Yeah, I tried a bunch of times. I'll, I'll try again. It's really, you know, because they randomly pop pops up the lights if you follow one. But I'll try. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> That's how they are. They're they're on and off. I've only I've only seen them twice in my life. And it's it is breathtaking. It's so exciting. So, so there are none in in Oregon or California. No, none. Nowhere I've ever lived. The only thing. Hello, Guru. Hello, Jennifer. Um, the only thing I've ever seen in Oregon is a little glowworm. It was on a trail. And I, I saw this glistening thing. I'd see it a lot. And I always thought somebody dropped a little piece of a candy wrapper, you know, like foil. And then and then it just was, um, you know, too, I was seeing it too regularly. And I, I picked it up. And it was a little, it was a little worm. I mean, it's a glow worm. That's it. I don't know if it has a flying counterpart, but that's it. Uh, yeah, so I think I also only saw them the first time here on when I came to the U.S. here on the East Coast, in the north of the East Coast. Oh, okay, they're not in Portugal. Yeah, I've only seen them in Fiesole in Italy. It's a, it's a beautiful hilly town, and and they're kind of flying houses in the background and lights. It's so dramatic, and yeah they're just magical we should try to bring them to science society yeah we should we should do a room about them um yeah i thought gulruk i hope i'm saying your name right hi thanks for popping by so today is is good to learn if you don't like exercise but you like the effects of exercise <laughs> scientist is working on a cheat basically uh, he um, he see he saw basically but he will talk about it later I don't want to take away um, his story but he basically saw what um, gets produced in the body um, through exercise and then he figured out basically he's figuring out how you can basically induce that in a person but more disease related um, for people that have disorders but <laughs> I told my husband about this <laughs> this is the room for him <laughs> but anyways welcome everyone your husband is not a fan of of uh... A good workout. Well, if it's like 
playing soccer or tennis or something, then yes. But just, you know, going to the gym and doing exercise, that's not his thing. Oh, so. my gosh. Well, that makes so much sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even though, okay, I admit it, I like, I like that kind of thing. But uh, it does, it seems so artificial, you know, just to be doing, lifting things up on purpose. You know, I, when I was, um, when my kids were little and I was carrying them around a lot, there, there was no way I was ever going to do weight training because I just totally stopped doing that because I was lifting, I was lifting little people up all day long. And so to lift something for no good reason when it wasn't even crying or hungry just seemed so ridiculous. So, um, yeah, I agree with your husband. Soccer. Yeah, like, uh, he used to like surfing, but then this year he got hurt. Like a wave really pushed him around and he dislocated his shoulder. And he was using the scooter the other day with my daughter and he fell on his knee. Like, he's, I don't know. I told him he needs to stretch more or something. Like... You got really mad. I said, you know, older men, like, have to stretch more. <laughs> think, no, like, especially in the legs. Like, it's not even a lie. <laughs> and he got, he got upset. So. I have a feeling he might be upset if he were here now. <laughs> Maybe we need a disclaimer or he needs a disclaimer. <laughs> oh, he's fine. <laughs> Everything you hear here about nobody knows has been stays in society. <laughs> yeah, nobody knows his name. It's incognito. <laughs> Anyways. Hi Joyce, come up. Hey Joyce. Hello. Welcome. Hi. Are you here yeah, to sing a song? I was just saying we get, we know each other a little better after the other night when the guest asked us for a little biographies. Oh, that was <laughs> such a nice thing. I thought that was, I loved that he turned it around on us. We had to be flexible. It was great. I Hi, James. Hi, Christian. Anna. I agree. This was great. It was a great experience. And I was in Joyce's room the other day. It was really good. So it's a it's bonding. We should do that more, sharing our stories, bonding time. Hi, James. How are you? I'm good. I'm hoping Victoria's going to sing for us again today. <laughs> I was worried I would hear something like that. Um, so I was in a room the other day with James, and for some reason I did bust out um, I'm Just a Love Machine. I've had it, I've legitimately had it stuck, I'm trying to think if it's been a week, but I have had that song stuck in my head since you sang it. I'm just a love machine, and I won't work for nobody but you. True, baby. Yeah, it's true, it happened. Maybe that's a first in science society that we're singing to our guests, but... Well, we had instruments playing, what was it again? Who, who played an instrument? We had the music neuroscience room about how music is perceived and pitch, uh, perfect pitch room. Mm, do you remember? I do remember. And it followed a language room. It was a room about. Mm, I do remember. We speak Neuro French. 
the French language room? No. No. Um, no, it was, um, it was in here, in Science Society. Katarina, do you remember? It was, we had, it was something about the effects of language learning on Yes, on the, something. On, on the musicality and the other way around musicality on learning mm. language. And okay. Okay, so it was one room and I'm remembering it as two because it was two really interesting topics in one. Yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> We'll start in five minutes. Um, thank you, everyone, for coming. <laughs> Sorry, I have to be on the hotel, and my daughter is scared to go by herself somewhere. <laughs> Sorry. I was just going to tell Katarina that I haven't been to very many countries in Europe, but one of the countries I was in was Portugal, and I really loved it. How nice. Where have you been in Portugal? Well, um, I went to a conference in Portugal, and um, it was in Porto. So that was the place we were in the most. But the rest of Portugal, we just, you know, traveled through on the train, and it was beautiful looking at it through the window. And and I, in Porto, um, I, I really didn't take too much time to sightsee, unfortunately, because I was at the conference. But I did take a day and took a, a bus that had a... Um, you know, an open air where you sit on top of the bus all around Porto, and, and it was just a wonderful day. That's my... That's where you're from? Porto? I don't think I can hear you. Um. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know that my mic was hot. Um, yes, I believe she's Catarina's from Porto. I have a refrigerator magnet of Porto, a scene from Porto. I, I didn't buy a bunch of souvenirs, but I have a refrigerator magnet with it. <laughs> Katarina, are you having mic issues? Mm. We can't hear you. Well, I hope someday to also have such a refrigerator magnet, Joyce. I haven't been yet, but it's coming up. Welcome, Costa. Welcome, Eric. Oh, that's a really cute PTR, Eric. Well, we'll start in about two minutes. Uh, chances that we'll start are even better if the guest speaker arrives. <laughs> I should say when the guest speaker arrives. So Joyce, what were you in Portugal for? Was it? Holiday? It was a conf 
Yeah, it was a conference. Um, it was the International Congress on Auto Autoimmunity. And um, I was co-author on a paper that was being presented there. And uh, it was a very interesting conference. But I would have liked to see more, but I, I just didn't have a lot of time scheduled there. And so one day was had to be it. <laughs> oh, that is short, but a beautiful one day, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The rest of the time I was at the conference. Although we did, we did sightsee a little bit in Spain. I think wait when we were getting ready for the airplane trip out of Spain. But then the only other country I've been to besides that in Europe is Switzerland. And that was way back when I was in high school. And um, our high school band and drill team got invited to Switzerland. We raised the money and we went. <laughs> Can you guys? Places. Hello, John. Yes, we hear you now. And John has arrived. Yes, we hear everyone now. Katarina, we hear you. We hear John. John, welcome. Perfect. Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, please let me know if at some point you can't hear me. <laughs> I hope it works out now. And um, yeah, Joyce, just a quick note. Yeah, that's my hometown. <laughs> it's Porto. But uh, I don't know if you could hear it earlier. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you, John, for coming. And I think we can uh, start. Uh, welcome to Science Society. Um, we are so glad you made it. <laughs> I'm glad I made it. I'm still trying. I'm still trying to learn how to use Clubhouse. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, well, you found the unmute button. That's the most important one, I would say, <laughs> so we can hear you speak. And everything else, uh, we can. You know, uh, we will monitor for you, so um, don't worry about the rest. <laughs> okay. Perfect. Um, so uh, before we start, um, I'll give a short introduction to the audience so they get to know you, and um, and then we'll, Victoria will ask you a couple of interview questions, and then you know, uh, the stage is yours to uh, talk about your really interesting, cool research. Okay, sounds good. Perfect. Okay, uh, welcome everyone to the Science Society and of course a special um, warm welcome to you, John. And um, uh, Dr. John Long, he's a principal investigator, assistant professor of pathology and chemistry at the at, um Stanford, and he received his Bachelor in Biochemistry with summa cum laude from Columbia University, New York. And he completed his PhD in Chemistry at the Scripps Research Institute in the laboratory of Benjamin Kravat. Um, after his PhD, he uh, did a postdoc in Boston, and then later he was instructor of cell biology in Bruce Spiegelman's uh, lab at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute at Harvard Medical School. And there he started investigating the biochemical and bioenergetic basis of mammalian energy metabolism. And since 2018, John uh, 
as I said, is the assistant professor of pathology and chemistry institute um, scholar at Stanford University. And he received different awards. And um, yeah, it's such an honor to have you here. And um, happy to be yeah. here. <laughs> Thank you. And Victoria, the stage is yours for the questions. Thank you. All right, welcome. And I, I would also like to say welcome, Dr. Shah. We're glad you're here. And John. Um, Thank you so much, Victoria, and everyone. Mm -hmm. All right, so we'll get started. Uh, Katarina, thank you for sharing John's information. And John, my question to you is to just learn a bit about more about you before you start mm -hmm. into your talk. So if you can think back through your life and think about when you first felt that you had a special connection to science, that science was something that you really identified with or um, so interesting to you, then can you please tell us about that? You know, I wish I had a great story. No pressure. <laughs> but I have, Seriously, I have a no very, pressure. I have a, very, <laughs> I have a very pedestrian story about how I got to the job that I'm doing now, which is that uh, when I was a kid, actually, what I tended to gravitate towards was more, you know, the analytical math and engineering and these kinds of things. But by the time I got to college and I saw what, you know, like professional mathematics looked like, I mean, it's just totally ridiculous. I don't understand. Yeah, I couldn't understand half of what was going on in my math courses. And uh, it was around that time that my parents, uh, you know, thought it'd be a good idea to go to med school. And being like, you know, a good Chinese boy, I was like, well, I guess I might as well take the med school prereqs. But then I realized that I didn't want, I didn't want to go to med school either. Um, because at that time, I, I just got much more interested in sort of, I was working in a lab, a chemistry lab at the time, and I really got interested in just thinking about the problems and, uh, and doing the research. And I thought that, you know, that sort of suited my personality best. And so that's sort of how I ended up in research. Um, it was sort of a meandering, you know, this wasn't suitable, that wasn't suitable. Um, but I think I've always had an interest in sort of understanding things uh, and trying to figure stuff out. And so that certainly helped along the way. Thank you. It's, it's, um, so you're, you were following your interests, you were following what, what worked for you. And I hear uh, there is a common thread here that, that people, what's really one thing that's really attracting people, not necessarily to the specific uh, branches of, of study, but is being, well, exactly what you said, being interested in thinking about problems and, and ha learning how to solve them and feeling that doing their PhD work or you know, their master's, whatever, that would provide them with the tools to figure out how to do that. And yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think, you know, in, in my case too, um, sort of what you're talking about, you know, this idea of solving problems, I think I was really encouraged um, in my undergrad. And when I was sort of doing at that time sort of chemistry research, I was sort of surprised by the fact that even as an undergrad, you could you can learn stuff about your system, you know. And it's like I had taken like two chemistry classes and I got in this lab. And I don't know, you know, why the investigator even let me in there. I didn't have any sort of serious experience at that point. Um, with so little information to actually be able to understand something, even at a small scale, I think was 
incredibly encouraging. And so I think that's sort of what kept me going from then on um, down this path of continuing research and continuing to discover in the biological sciences. Yeah, thank you. So can you take us from that lab from when you were when you mm -hmm. began there to up until this present time? Maybe some events that happened along the way that have brought you to the research that you're about to present to us? I think, you know, um, at, a, at a sort of a, a fundamental level, um, the, the work that I've been sort of broadly interested in is in the realm of physiology and metabolism and medicine. And, um, you know, I find this to be interesting, not only because of sort of the human health implications, but I think, especially for metabolism, I mean, this is something that like, you know, I'm thinking about all the time, right? Like, you eat three meals a day, after breakfast, you're thinking about lunch, after lunch, you're thinking about dinner. Um, most mornings, you know, I'm on my elliptical doing some exercise. I think it's just, it's just really interesting that, um, you know, your the body has all these different homeostatic mechanisms for regulating metabolism. And I guess we, you know, I, I came to this because originally, as I mentioned, I was sort of, I was at Columbia, I was studying chemistry and, um, but I, I knew that sort of just studying chemistry itself wasn't sort of sufficiently fulfilling. It still seemed sort of far removed from uh, my day-to-day -day living. And so from there, I sort of moved into biochemistry during my PhD. And then as I sort of learned more and more about biochemistry and physiology, eventually I sort of developed um, a large enough toolkit that I could actually start to address some of these questions that I'd long been interested in, like with diet and exercise and metabolism generally, but I couldn't, but I didn't quite have the chops to, to deal with when I was just starting off the research. And so I, I guess that's sort of the, the short version of that story. Right. Yeah, thank you. And so, yeah, that's a great lead in for you to begin because now we're really excited and interested to hear more about about what you've done with, with those questions about metabolism and diet and exercise. So you're welcome to begin your talk right now. And if you would like, at the end, we can have a Q&A or if you'd like to mm -hmm. have a Q&A along the way, that's up to you too. And as Katarina mentioned, um, we'll handle everything else like people asking questions or sometimes people, um, audience, uh, friends here are welcome to put questions also in the room chat and we can share those with you too. So you're welcome to begin and we have your PDF pinned at the top. So if you'd like to refer to that, go right ahead. And the Great. mic is yours. Yeah, thank you. Okay, Th thank you so much, Victoria. So, you know, um, I, I just wanna say like, I, I would prefer this not to be a monologue. <laughs> <laughs> if, if, if possible, I haven't sort of prepared uh, any type of, you know, soliloquy here. So I'll just um, start by very briefly summarizing our main findings, and then I'll just sort of open it up for discussion. I think in the Q&A that might bring out some more questions or things that you guys are all interested in, that, so that what I'm talking might be more relevant for, for what you want to know. But basically, um, the motivation for this kind of work is that we all know that exercise is good for you, but for something that's so plainly obvious, it's remarkable how little we actually understand about how exercise works and the molecular mechanisms 
you know, that mediate the benefits of exercise. And so uh, part of the research program in my lab is geared towards this idea of trying to capture the molecules of exercise with the idea that if you can understand those molecules, then you might be able to, in the future, pharmacologically hijack those pathways to develop the next generation of medicines for all the things that exercise is good for, which include, for example, frailty and osteoporosis and sarcopenia and you know brain health and cardiometabolic health and so on. And so uh, what this paper is about is really our efforts in this direction. We used an approach called metabolomics to try to find uh, exercise regulated molecules in the blood. And to our surprise, it turns out that humans and sled dogs and racehorses and mice and rats and basically anything that moves, they all turn on the same molecule in the blood. And that molecule is called LACFI. And the way that LACFI is made is that it's made from lactate. So essentially the harder you work out in terms of your ability to produce lactate, the more LACFI you can make. What that also means is that in certain types of exercise, like if you're walking slowly, you don't make that much LACFI because you don't produce that much lactate. And what LACFI does is very interesting. It turns out that it's actually a chemical messenger that goes to your brain to regulate appetite. And so we think that at least part of the reason that you feel like you're going to vomit after a hard workout is because your body is producing a lot of LACFI. Probably the strongest evidence that we have for this is that we've engineered mice to be deficient in their ability to make LACFI. And what happens is that when you exercise these mice, they continue to eat after exercise and they get fat. <laughs> okay, so that sort of really says that this LACFI molecule is part of the appetite suppression effect that's associated with really intense exercise. So that's sort of the, the, the summary of this work and the context that it's done. And I think sort of as we think about moving forward, we're very much interested in trying to understand more about how LACFI works to regulate feeding. There are lots of different circuits in the brain that are involved in feeding control. And we're interested in understanding both the LACFI receptors as well as the neuronal circuits uh, that LACFI is tapping into to suppress feeding behaviors. We're also interested, of course, in potential other functions of LACFI because basically we think about this as like an exercise-inducible neurotransmitter. And so we're wondering about, well, you know, exercise is really good for brain health in all sorts of other ways. Uh, maybe LACFI is important for, for uh, all of those other types of responses to exercise, such as, for example, improvements in mood or cognition or protection against uh, neurodegeneration. Okay, so with that, that's sort of my spiel, and I'm very happy to, you know, open it up to Q&A. Uh, I'm happy to hear your questions about this work or about exercise more generally. Um, yeah, I'll just open up the floor. Yeah, thank you so much for giving this wonderful introduction and um, for sharing with us, um, you know, the motivation of your work and the story behind it that's also always really interesting so uh yeah if people have questions please flash your microphone uh, or write in the chat uh, i'll i'll read out the questions then and um and then we go from there but um 
Dr. Shah Joyce, if you want to go ahead. If not, I'll ask the question first. I'll wait for you to flash a microphone. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, thank you so much for sharing this. And um, it's really interesting that you could <laughs> that you could find the exercise, um, you know, metabolite that you could um, control food intake. Um, uh, we had recently um, also a guest here that talked about food intake uh, control, um, and um, that it's a it's really interesting to see um, these you know these advances that are being made here. And um, so <laughs> probably the first question we all have: How long does it take until we can <laughs> until we can just take it? Yeah, exercise in a pill and you don't have to worry about it, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, this, I, I have to say, like, this is by far the most popular question that I, I get asked about this. The, the answer is going to be not anytime soon, but I can also give you a more detailed answer than that. So, you know, as you mentioned, the, the control of feeding is just like such a fascinating and interesting thing. And, uh, you know, especially if you talk to people, I mean, and, and the, I guess it's most fascinating because you have, you know, pathologic eating disorders on, on both sides of the spectrum. And even sort of for normal folks like you and I, um, you know, sometimes it can feel like I can't help but eat more or I can't help but you know, I'm not hungry, right? And what's interesting to me as someone who thinks about chemistry and medicine and physiology about that kind of um uh, uh that kind of feeling that you have about food intake and feeding control is that that tells you that this must be under tight regulation and in fact we now understand that the control of feeding is under tight hormonal regulation okay so over the last uh let's say 30 years there have been probably half a dozen molecules that have been described that control feeding behaviors some are extremely famous right these are like the leptins and the ghrelins and then some are more mysterious such as you know gdf-15 and some of the gut peptides and so on and this gets to your question uh because i think looking at this sort of constellation of other feeding hormones helps provide a context and a blueprint for how to think about the therapeutic development of LACFI. I would love if LACFI, this pathway, could be therapeutically harnessed for the treatment of, let's say, obesity and diabetes, or to help, you know, somebody lose a few pounds here and there in a safe way. But what we've learned from all these other appetite hormones is that uh, there have been about, let's say, 10 described so far, one turns out to be a billion dollar blockbuster drug, okay? The drug is called liraglutide and semaglutide, and it's based off a pathway called the GLP-1 pathway. There are others that have never been successfully translated to human studies for one reason or another. Okay, maybe the pathway is not wired the same in humans. Maybe there's dose-limiting toxicity, right? And then there's like every example in the middle. Okay, there are some that are still currently in clinical development. There are some that work, like leptin works in people, but only if you're leptin deficient, and there's only a handful of people that fall into that category. Okay. And so 
how LACFI eventually will play out in sort of a therapeutic sense uh, is anybody's guess. But what I would say is that based on those historical examples that I've enumerated, um, it could be in any of those buckets, right? It could be the next billion dollar drug. It could just never be successfully translated to people. And we're trying to do experiments to figure that out right now. Yeah, thank you for that. I, you know, it's kind of, you know, of course, everyone <laughs> doesn't like to come till 15, three hours a day, like, no. But um, I was thinking, you know, for people that may be uh, paralyzed or, you know, other type of yeah. impairments that kind of is unrealistic for them to do real exercise. But I would imagine that inducing that artificially that effect could um, increase quality of life and lifespan. Oh, you know what? And I, I think you're, I think this is, I think this is the really the main take home message, right? It, because, you know, in a way, when I talk about capturing the molecules of exercise, this is on one hand, a very strange kind of idea, because you think, well, exercise is so complicated, there must be so many molecules and so many pathways involved, how do you even dissect this into single molecules. But on the other hand, we are already, in a sense, doing this. And the sense that we're doing this is actually in the context not of health, but of performance, right? Because we know about the molecules of exercise for performance, you can dope off those molecules, right? These are, for example, anabolic steroids, peptides that are growth factors, and you can improve human performance that way. And yet, the sort of corresponding molecules of exercise associated with human health, health where you could try to dope off those molecules for exactly what you're talking about. Let's say someone who can't exercise, right, but maybe wants to harness a pathway related to mood or some other aspect of quality of life, you know, th that knowledge is simply not there. And so I think that is ultimately the long-term goal and whether that will be with LACFI or some other molecule, you know, that, that remains uh, an area that we're actively looking at right now. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's wonderful. And, um, so how many athletes organizations are writing to you <laughs> if they want the yeah. first? Because I would <laughs> say it would really be really hard to detect any doping, uh, doping if you just use molecules that are part of, I'm sorry to go there, but these are like, you know, it's clubhouse, you can a little Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's like, interesting. I mean, it's interesting. So for example, uh, it is possible. So if, if, you know, we're just moving away from, let's say, lack. So the short answer for your specific question is so far, no athletes have contacted me. But I do know, like, there are, you know, forums on Reddit and Let's Run and stuff like that, where athletes are writing about this. So they're, you know, it's sort of in the, <laughs> it's in the sort of ethos and in the, in the air. Um, but what, what I would say is that, you know, when, when athletes do dope, they are doping off endogenous substances, right? So for example, testosterone is, and other anabolic steroids like testosterone are naturally occurring molecules. And uh, so that, that is a mechanism that is used. And in fact, we can detect exogenous testosterone using sort of very interesting and fancy analytical chemistry methods. And so I think, you know, if this were to go into the realm of doping, um, I guess, first of all, I'm not sure what the indication would be, but even if that were the case, I think it would be detectable. And I think it's, you know, testosterone sort of case in point there. 
Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that. I'm I'm sorry to go there, but um, yeah, Victoria, Dr. Shah, Joyce, do you, do you have any questions? Yeah. Thank you so much, John. I mean, that was very interesting and fascinating work. My question exactly. I waited for the end of the. I'm in conversation to ask you about the IGF-1 because we know about the role of the IGF-1. We call it as a mitogenic as well as the anti-apoptic mm -hmm. activity that we know it from the IGF and the role of the IGF-1 in different kinds of cancer, include the colorectal cancer. And that was very amazing that you just described about that. And we know about the higher methylation in those people that they have a high index or BMI. So I was just wondering, maybe you have any side notes that you can share with us about the, your finding in relation with the mm -hmm. cancer treatment. Uh, in relation to cancer treatment, was that the yeah. question? Because are you, you're thinking about the drug development mm -hmm. and I was just wondering whatever you can share with us through that. Yeah, so, you know, I guess the, the way that, so the, the short answers I don't have, um, we are, looking at this but kind of indirectly <laughs> okay and and the the way that we're thinking about the cancer angle sort of twofold the first is that exercise is good for many many things um we know sort of you know when we think about it in sort of normal day-to-day -day living we think about sort of the cardiometabolic benefits the mood benefits these kinds of things but actually you know in a pretty reasonable number of clinical studies exercise has been shown to be beneficial during sort of cancer treatment as well, both for sort of the um, overall cardiometabolic health of the individual patients, but also for the, the tumors uh, in terms of sort of reducing tumor size. So that's very interesting. And so we're thinking about whether LACFI might be participating um, as sort of in that type of process. And we don't have any data right now, but that's sort of the idea. The other way that we're thinking about it is that, you know, basically, what our uh, studies in this paper point to is this idea that whenever you're producing a lot of lactate, like an exercise, you're also producing a lot of lactate because this is, this is derived from lactate. And another context where there's a lot of lactate being produced is actually in certain types of cancers because these tumors uh, have what's called the Warburg effect, where basically they undergo a ton of glycolysis to produce a ton of lactate. And in those types of tumors, we're wondering, could they be producing lactate, And could that be, for example, associated with cachexia or other wasting diseases that are associated with cancer? So for instance, you might, um, you might know that uh, when Steve Jobs, towards the end of his life, was suffering from pancreatic cancer, one of the sort of most stark visual images was that he was you know, sort of wasting, right? He had lost a tremendous amount of weight. And that's because in the particular type of pancreatic cancer that he had, one of the side effects, not the side effect, but one of the uh, major endocrine effects of that tumor was to cause muscle atrophy and wasting. Now, uh, it could be possible that, uh, you know, high levels of lactate might, you know, in a, path in a pathologic sense, uh, mediate some aspects of cancer cachexia and sort of the weight loss associated with cancer cachexia. And so that, that's sort of the other way that we're, we're thinking about this as well. So do you think that we can just use the, for example, liquid biopsy for catching that as a marker? Yeah, I mean, you can detect it in blood for sure, <laughs> you know, and we're trying to do that now. 
So one of the questions, you know, I mean, the, the, when we're trying to look at lactian blood in the humans for this particular study, we're mostly looking at the context of cancer, uh, of, sorry, exercise. Um, and what we're trying to do now is to go across essentially thousands of individuals in extremely well phenotyped and genotyped human cohorts, like the Jackson Heart Study, or, uh, for example, framing, uh, and trying to measure lactian and try to determine, you know, does, if you, if you look at baseline lactate levels that tell you anything about, for example, the cardiometabolic health of the individual that it came from. One of the things that we're finding that makes it complicated is that the levels of lactate are also, um, or can be affected by the amount of activity that you've had, as we show in this paper. So for example, if you like are getting your blood drawn, but you're sort of a little bit late and you're running to your doctor's office, that will increase the amount of lactate you have in your blood. So that turns out to be a confounder in the actual measurements across these large human cohorts. So we're trying to tease all that apart right now. And I, I think eventually we'll try to, um, with the, you know, the ultimate goal of all that work is to determine whether in sort of a liquid biopsy sense, we can use that as a marker or something useful. Well, I have a question. Um, I was, I had heard sort of that this was common wisdom or something like that. And I was just checking to see what it said in, on the internet when I Googled it. And, and it seemed to be that they were saying that in general, that people as a weight loss method, that just exercising did not typically work. Although it said that some studies showed that maybe in some people it could. But for most people, they also have to change, you know, work at changing their diet. And I was just thinking, you know, it seems like it must be a bit more complex. For one thing, if you do exercise more, your body does really need more calories uh, so that it would be evolutionarily not a good idea to suppress your your energy, you know, your uh, intake of food too much just because you were exercising. It would be counterproductive. And, um, and so I, I'm thinking it must be more complex or, or what would you and say? You're, yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct. I mean, it, it always is because whenever you're talking about sort of a, a, a chemical messenger system or a hormone system, as we think lactate is, uh, there's always gonna be counter-regulatory hormones and other you know, processes that kick in. I think sort of anecdotally, we all understand this already because for example, if you are going for a leisurely hike for an hour and you come back, I mean, for me, I'm totally starving, right? But that's a very different feeling than when someone tells you to run, you know, like half mile repeats on, on the track. I mean, after that, you feel like you're gonna vomit. And so I, I think really the, the takeaway from this is that the effect of exercise on feeding control is complicated depending on the type of exercise and the duration and the intensity. We think that at least with short-term, acute, hard exercise, that lactate is one of the mechanisms that's responsible for suppressing feeding. But then there are, prob there are probably counter-regulatory pathways that are kicking in with uh, exercise that's either longer in duration or lower in, in intensity. The one other thing I'll just mention, because you sort of brought up this idea of the, um, the sort of evolutionary thinking about this pathway, is that, you know, classically, we have the autonomic nervous system response to fleeing away from a predator, which is sort of the precursor for what we, you know, call exercise in modern day. 
And, and what, what that is, is like, you know, in, in the old days when we were all living in caves and you had to, and you had a predator chasing you, right? The autonomic nervous system response to that is you shut down digestion so that you can direct glucose to your muscles so that you can run faster and flee from the predator. And of course that, you know, that gives you an, an intuitive sense of that in sort of the acute high intensity exercise, you actually want to shut down your digestion so that you can preserve your life. And so what we think about here is that LACFI and this sort of appetite suppressing chemical messenger system is a hormone-like system that works in parallel with the autonomic nervous system response. Now, of course, once you have fled from the predator, right, other types of systems kick in to help you recoup the energy that you've just expended and to help promote feeding at that point. And that's not what we're saying LACFI does under those conditions. I mean, there must be other molecules involved there. But at least for the short term, uh, in that sort of running away from a lion type scenario, that's, that's sort of where we think LACFI is operational. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. So your body is, is basically because of that acute uh, effort that you've put out, it's really stretched your body and the body's saying, uh oh, that predator might still be around, you know, you better be careful and you better not right. eat, you know, and, and yeah, I could see that. Thanks. Yeah, thank you for those questions and um, and for answering. Uh, it's really interesting to to think about that perspective. Um, apparently, you know, it. If you look at from <laughs> from an algorithmic kind of way, it just it just um, primes this uh, decision to not eat and focus on being able to run a behavior like it, it bumps it up <laughs> instead of you know having the priority to eat um that's really interesting do you maybe see that also in did, did you think of checking and uh women are about to have um babies um if that is also uh increased yeah so we're i mean i right so the this the short answer is we don't know we're looking and we're trying to find at least in humans sort of all the diverse situations that you can find where appetite is regulated okay so what you mentioned is an extremely interesting situation during pregnancy there's uh, intense physiologic excuse me and hormonal changes in the body and you know my uh, my wife right now is is pregnant. Okay, where uh, she's uh, let's see, we're almost in third trimester. But I remember for a few weeks there, she just couldn't stop eating, right? And she was like voraciously, and you know, there's like crazy cravings too. And so what we're thinking is that you know we're trying to examine that type of behavior and to ask, well, maybe lactate is also, you know, maybe the suppression of lactate is mediating some of those bouts of behavior. Uh, we're thinking about other things. So, for example, um, you know, people who are on uh, a very common diabetes medication called metformin, uh, occasionally they report that their appetite is actually suppressed. And so metformin, the sort of the mechanism by which metformin suppresses uh, feeding or body weight is not at, well, not at all well established. And we're also wondering, well, maybe in that case, LACFI might be playing a role. And so we're sort of looking very broadly at different physiologic states um, 
for different types of conditions when your when your impulse to eat is regulated in a different way and we're trying to use those as a, as a sort of motivation for trying to understand does the effect of lactate extend beyond exercise alone Yeah, that's, uh, go ahead, Dr. Sher. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was just wondering because you mentioned about the metformin and increased, I mean, actually is it doesn't decrease appetite. It's reversely increased the appetite. And I was just wondering about the sample. Is that part of your research? Because one of the side effects from the metformin is dependent what patient we are talking about is increasing appetite, not yeah. decreasing and weight gain. Yeah, right. So you're you're absolutely right that it's sort of a complicated literature across the you know across all the different studies um i think in there are a handful of studies that indicate that metformin can suppress body weight and there there is some also i mean albeit it's in it's in mouse there's some supporting mouse data that suggests there are different mechanisms responsible for that and it could be possible, absolutely, that, you know, metformin works to lower blood glucose in all people and has differential effects on feeding and body weight, depending on a particular uh, individual or the cohorts that, that are examined there. And we're, we're trying to tease that out. So, for example, one of the things that we're doing is we're partnering with the Stanford uh, Endocrinology and Diabetes Clinic here. And we're trying to just do essentially run a clinical trial where we're looking at metformin and its effects on body weight, and then its effects on lack feed levels. And so for instance, maybe in those individuals that are taking metformin that have suppressed body weight, uh, those are the individuals where met, you have a metformin inducible lack feed spike. And maybe in those individuals where metformin leads to actually weight gain, as you're talking about, maybe in those cases, what you actually see is uh, suppression of lack feed in those individuals. And so we're, we're trying to look at that, look at that question right now. Yeah, because uh, I mean, I know about the longevity and they are using for introducing metformin as a longevity pill. And because we are just, when we are talking about the diabetes patient or such a thing, there is a different mechanism that we should take. And uh, another question that I had that was about the immune response. And did you found any further information around the immune response in your research? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. We're looking into that now. We don't have any uh, sort of leads on that. One of the um, sort of very surprising aspects of our work was the finding that LACFI is mostly produced in immune cells. And so that tells you that immune cells are highly responsive to physical activity. And we're trying to understand, you know, might there be, for example, paracrine or autocrine mechanisms where LACFI is directly acting on immune cells themselves to, to somehow regulate immune function? We, we have no idea. But one sort of provocative um, thinking in that vein is that exercise sort of has an acute pro-inflammatory, is sort of an acute pro-inflammatory stimulus that then becomes in sort of a chronic sense an anti-inflammatory intervention and so we're wondering you know might lacky play a role in in those types of responses we don't really have any good data one way or another right now yeah it made me think of um when you said it affected the immune cells that um how it's it's been discovered that that stress 
is um, is pro-inflammatory because you know for the same reasons you're talking about, if the um, lion was about to eat you, your body throughout evolution has acquired the ability to be ready for that injury that's about to happen and get the immune system all geared up for that. And so it seems like that could be connected with what you're saying about the lack, the, that particular substance affecting immune cells. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting, par you know, when you start to think about sort of the evolution of these things and the fight and flight response uh, and sort of that very classical physiological literature, there's a lot of, sort of interesting nuggets there that sort of tie back to our current work here because of course, at that time when they were working out the physiology of, of that type of response to like a predator and things like this, of course, they didn't have the very advanced, uh, you know, analytical tools that we have today and the modern tools that we have today to basically look deeper and more broadly at the chemical composition of our bodies. And so it's sort of interesting now with these new tools, we're finding out all these new molecules but the physiology is still the same. I mean, that was a physiology they discovered, you know, 50 years ago or more. And so then it becomes sort of an interesting question trying to sort of bring back to life that old literature and thinking about that old literature in the context of this new data. Yes, thank you. I was wondering, oh. No, no, go ahead. I was wondering, um, I'm not sure if you said this or not, but what was the general um, kind of parameters of what was the type and amount and length of exercise that that caused this effect versus the kind that made you very hungry? Right. So in as far as we can tell, the time when you produce the most lactate is under high intensity sprint exercise. And so um, the study that we actually did in the paper, we took a cohort of, turns out Danish individuals, the study was actually done in, at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. And these were eight healthy young men and we had them come back week after week after week and each week they did something different. So in the first week they did nothing. So that was sort of the control group. In the second week, we gave them a sprint exercise and this consisted of a Wingate test where they're asked to go on a bike and go all out for 30 seconds. So it's extremely short, extremely high intensity. The third week they came back and they were asked to do an endurance exercise where they were asked to cycle for one hour at 50% VO2 max. So this is sort of moderate to low intensity uh, for an hour. And then the last week they came back and they did resistance exercise. And in that case, they were asked to do leg curls at a certain intensity where basically 10 reps was to failure and they did three sets of that. And it turns out that, you know, the levels of lactate are induced maybe two or three fold with the resistance training and with the endurance training. But with the sprint training, I mean, it lactate just goes through the roof, like tenfold or more. And the way that we basically think about that. So so to answer your question, right, basically, the more lactate you can produce, the more lactate you will produce because it's derived from lactate. And so you, when you think about when is lactate production the highest? it's always under this like high intensity sprint type exercise. And what, what that is sort of, the reason that's interesting is of course, you know, it's also that high intensity sprint exercise that's sort of where you get that vomiting type of feeling <laughs> where you feel like, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really feeling nauseous. And so sort of the, 
um, the slight stretch of the interpretation is that lack fee is, is in part mediating that nauseous feeling after a hard workout. Okay, that's good. Although it seems like if you'd feel too nauseated after doing that, and this was the situation of a predator, it might kind of interfere with your escaping, but I don't know. Right, right, right. Yeah, I know that nauseous feeling quite well, but um, it's it's really so. What's the the time span that you have to to do exercise? Like, what's the limit? What do we have to do to get this effect? You know, as far as we can tell, a thirty second all out bout on a bike is enough. Oh my god! But when I say when I say all when I say all out, I mean it's like it's like really intense. So you know, if you um. So I did this on myself because I was curious uh, and I thought, you know, well, these, you know, these Danish folk, they shouldn't be having all the fun to, you know, in these experiments. So the experiment that was done in Copenhagen and the one that we were reproducing here at Stanford, it's called a Wingate test. And I didn't know anything about what this was. So I started to Google and YouTube some of this. It turns out Wingate tests are often used in the NHL as a test of maximal anaerobic power. And so there are these like really incredible videos of the of just like these like NHL players going all out, you know, on a bike for 30 seconds. And it's just incredibly intense. So I saw this and I was like, okay, I'm going to try this. And after 30 seconds, I mean, the legs are burning, everything hurts. It like it is not pleasant to do a 30 second all out wind gate test. But that but that is at least for me also when when my laxity spikes the most. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, I appreciate. It. I do hit training, but not yes, exactly. like ten minutes a day. Yeah. So that's enough. So I'm good. But well, I will for... do it way more. But you know, like since COVID, I got very lazy. So. So you know, I used to be, as someone who you know, I for sort of my whole life, I've been sort of in endurance sports. Um, and I used to be quite skeptical about HIT because it just, it, you know, I was, I was just thinking like, how can it be possible that you work out for so little time and reap what they claim are these long lasting benefits? But actually after having done this work, um, I'm more convinced about that with sort of the, the biochemical and explanation being that in the, in the, in these like bursts of high intensity workout that don't last very long, what you're actually producing are long lasting endocrine changes in your body, right? I mean, lactate is a prime example of that. You take this transient signal, which is lactate, and you convert it into a long lasting signal, lactate, and that sort of causes sort of long-term effects. And so I, I've, I've warmed up to the idea now of HIT, and I'm, I'm, I, I think it, it, it does work to some extent, yeah. That's wonderful news. Um, yeah, um, <laughs> I really appreciate that. Uh, I, was, that uh, I was just going to say, maybe not everyone knows what that is. Oh, oh yes. HIT is a high-intensity interval training, H-I-I-T. So that HIT training, though, if you're, if you're somebody with uh, PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome, and you have another metabolic array going on in your body, um, then that increases stress on the body, increases cortisol, as well as insulin, and so and so weight gain. So, how 
are you controlling for different situations such as that? Yeah, no, I'm not. Um, so the, so the short answer is no. And I guess, you know, I'm not saying that um, you should go out and do hit for this reason or that reason. But what I am saying is that I think what, what is what is sort of most interesting from a molecular aspect of this is that, you know, is exactly this kind of discussion. OK, before you would just talk about, well, there's hit and there's aerobic training and there's this and there's that. And you would talk about physical activity in these very, very sort of fluffy ways that are not definitive, right? And what, one of the advances of this work is that now we're translating that kind of very fuzzy intuition into some concrete things that you can measure. <laughs> and I think that's gonna be important um, because now you can start to define, okay, maybe, maybe the definition of hit should be when your lactate exceeds whatever you know, five micromolar or what, whatever the concentration is. And so we're sort of starting to enter that realm where we can start to define these things much more exactly uh, rather than having these very vague prescriptions. So, you know, the, the way that I, I sort of come at this as someone who's a chemist and biochemist and interested in drug development is that, um, you know, if you, if you take a drug, a modern day prescription drug, like maybe you take Lipitor, uh, you'll get a 30-page instruction manual about how to take it. On the first page, they'll tell you this is the chemical substance. This is torvastatin calcium. This is how you should take it. It's a 50-milligram pill. You should take it once a day or twice a day. Or, you know, and you should not take it if you're pregnant. You should not take it like this. You should take it with food or not. Or and so on, on, so on and so forth for 30 pages. Okay? And if you contrast that with what we, how we prescribe exercise, Basically, what we say is, well, you should move more than less and preferably you should spread it throughout the week. And maybe sometimes you should add weight training to that. And so what I'm talking about here is part of the part, sort of an intermediate step in capturing the benefits of exercise is also just in understanding the molecules of exercise so that we can start to be much more rigorous about how we talk about the different types of exercise and what we're actually doing to our bodies. Uh, under these different kinds of conditions. And that, you know, what I like about that um, is if you kind of in a stressful phase of your life, I don't know, you got you had a bunch of kids and, uh, and stuff like that to tell somebody, yeah, do five or 10 minutes, like, but exhaust yourself. It's like less overwhelming than telling like right. bedtime, do 45 minutes cardio and then another half an hour weight training like get lost like when should i ever do that you know with three kids right. but if you you know and if there's actual benefits of just doing that at least a little bit um, yeah i i think that's very i think you can convince more people of doing at least that i don't know um right but um dennis and Sel, um welcome to the stage do you want to ask something comment Hello. Yeah, go ahead. Hello. Thank you. Uh, first of all, thank you for the room. This is an amazing place to be. So thank you. And Dr. John, uh, I had a quick reflection about feeling nauseous when practicing heat. Uh, there was a very good point made about, well, when feeling nauseous, um, 
it might not be the best thing when trying to to flee to survive and i've been into heat for a while when i used to eat during daytime actually i felt nauseous but now i'm fasting all the time i only eat at night and even when i'm into heat i don't feel nauseous anymore i feel mm -hmm. exhausted but not nauseous so my reflection was would it be possible that our ancestors because of the lack of food used to be well which used to be fasting most of the time so they didn't feel nauseous when having to fight for their lives or flee thank you i mean that's an extremely provocative and interesting idea that somehow fasting and sort of entering ketosis and these kinds of things can uh counteract or at least reduce some of the other effects that you might get when you're in a fed state of molecules like lactate and maybe other molecules i mean that's extremely interesting <laughs> i have no idea and i would just be speculating but i i think what what for sure is true is that you know in this in this type of world of exercise and trying to molecularly dissect this stuff you know it, there are very few absolutes and a lot of things are context dependent um and so i wouldn't be surprised if it turns out that okay you know what we're showing here with the nauseous feeling with for example lactate is only in the fed state and that if you're in for example a ketosis state or you're fasting or something else that you don't see these kinds of things i think that's that's entirely possible um, thank I you for your answer thank you yeah so i didn't mean to cut you off were you finished so yeah i just said thank you for the answer thank you thank you i i wanted to um since we were mentioning fasting i feel it's necessary to um, just make the disclaimer that we aren't promoting any type of eating style or any type of restrictive eating style and and because you had mentioned eating disorders that that research does tell us that eating disorders are genetically linked mental illnesses, that they're life-threatening, and we take them very seriously, even while we're joking and having this discussion. So thank you. That, you know, being really vigorous as far as exercise, you gotta be a little careful and consider talking to your doctor about it, right? Yes, absolutely, I mean, yes. I, I see myself as like, you know, I'm a basic scientist. I'm studying the mechanisms of this very interesting and extreme physiologic perturbation. I don't mean to sort of prescribe anything here. You should always talk with your doctor. <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. Um, and uh, Denise, do you have any questions? Not at this time, just wanted to say really interesting um, considerations. I had not really thought about the fasted and unfasted states in the outcomes here, but it makes, it totally makes sense. So <laughs> good on you for including that. Well, there is a lot of data about um, fasting and um, from Russian clinics and uh, German clinics because it used to be a prescription, you know, when you would be chronically ill, it's still the case, like uh, you get 
sent to this core arte. Um, so it's like a clinic in some pristine nature place and uh, a lot of times um, fasting was prescribed um, and drinking these healing waters and so on. And um, it had like really, like there's a lot of data that's still kind of unused that had like surprising effects on all kinds of different chronic disorders and uh, mm -hmm. longer term actually. So it would be yeah, and really interesting. Yeah, I mean, not, not to get sort of too far off topic here, but um, you know, the, 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 con the medical context where as far as I'm aware, sort of fasting type approaches are actually used clinically and clinically indicated is actually in children for the treatment of uh, drug resistant epilepsy. So for example, some kids develop seizures and typically try to control it with anti-epileptic and anti-seizure medications. If the kids are refractory to those medicines and they don't work, what you can do then is you can try to put those children into ketosis by, for example, fasting or ketogenic diets or, uh, you know, sort of medium chain triglyceride therapies and these kinds of things. And so th there for sure is a very uh, interesting link between the, the ketosis state, uh, that physiologic state, which is can be induced, for example, by prolonged fasting or starvation um, and outcomes like seizures. And exactly how that works still to this day, nobody quite knows. Um, but it, you know, these are interesting observations from the medical literature. Yeah, um, and yeah, it, they, they always say in this clinics, you have to be relaxed and not working and not doing rigorous anything. What, but yeah, it would be interesting to look into those factors. Um, I know in rejuvenation, it's a big thing like uh, David Sinclair. And so I think all his recommendations are based on what happens in the cells uh, during fasting, basically. Right. Um, yeah. So anyways, yeah, I'm sorry. We are getting away from the topic. Um, yes. Well, and, and the other thing now is um, I, I have to I have to leave at seven o'clock or seven o'clock here, or 10 o'clock for you. Yeah. Um, okay, then uh, we have two minutes left. If anyone has a last question, please go ahead, ask a question. Um, or in the chat, let me check. Um, yeah, if not, um, you what's in so so you mentioned a few things that you're working on uh, related to this research. Um, what's what's the next step in general for you well you know um we basically from this we've shown that you can take something complicated like exercise and dissect out a single molecule that is very interesting and so now we are studying things like fasting <laughs> and other sort of extreme aspects of physiology with the idea of trying to uncover the molecules associated with that type of physiology so for example in ketosis and fasting, we're trying to identify fasting hormones. Uh, we're looking at pythons, um, what, because you know those. I mean, pythons, for example, will not eat for two months, and then will consume their whole body weight in food. So that's sort of an extreme model of that type of physiology. We're looking at hibernation because uh, there's very interesting sort of um, uh, regulation of body temperature in hibernation. 
And so we're trying to uncover molecules there. And so we're, we're sort of generally interested in connecting molecules to physiology with the goal of potentially understand, understanding those molecules and using them for human health. That's really interesting. How about being in low oxygen uh, levels? Hypoxia. Yeah, so that's another, I mean, so basically our, my general thesis here is that, you know, you should, if you're looking for interesting molecules associated with interesting physiology, you should be looking under extreme conditions. Exercise is one example of an extreme condition, uh, but there are many others, including hypoxia, you mentioned. Um, you can think of all sorts of other stuff like, you know, whales, right, have these extreme migrations. Um, that's also very interesting. We're, we're trying to think about ways of actually dissecting that in a in sort of a proper scientific sense. Yeah, and birds. Um, exactly. Yeah, interesting. Uh, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, that would be another topic, and then I we have to leave. But I was always thinking about you know PTSD type of things, and um, not just always using like pain on the cage you know what we do with rats right but different type of traumas but anyways we could go on and on but i want to let you go thank you so much for coming please come back anytime maybe with updates maybe continuing interesting discussions we really appreciate the time you offered us and um we wish you all the best for your research and we will be following you Great, thanks for having me on. Thank you. Yes, thank Bye -bye. you. Yeah, thank you so much. This was so fun. Whoop, he's gone. Yep. <laughs> he wastes no time. Okay. Next. Okay. Yeah, thank you so much everyone for coming, uh, for asking questions, for being here. Um we will have tomorrow our early morning room, nine AM EST, uh with uh dr DeSantis. she's joining us from spain alicante she recently became a professor there and um is talking about the she's actually a physicist and she uh, developed um, brain imaging in humans in a way that we can map microglia and astrocyte activation uh, which is really exciting because nobody really did that before so i'm really looking forward to our talk tomorrow morning and then we'll have a different type of talk tomorrow evening um that uh we recently had a book author here um, that we interviewed and we will have another book author um and woman um sharing her uh, story and uh, how she overcame um, uh, abuse in her life. Um, and she also created an amazing organization to help other women. So we will interview her tomorrow because our motivation is sharing stories, uh, giving people a platform to share stories that are true about themselves or about their work and i think we can maybe generate change and perspectives by sharing our stories and um just be here also to listen and learn so um yeah i hope to hear you all back uh, soon and uh, we appreciate everyone and thank you all for coming okay i'll close the room oh all right thank you thank you, yeah, you. Thank you so much was great. Thank Thanks you. for posting. Thanks. Okay, three, two, one. Bye, everyone.